Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to the Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that short sentence. I am so excited uh, for today because I love our series on the words of Jesus. And today I've got Dr. Ben Witherington III with me today, and I'm excited to talk about Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, Dr. Witherington uh, is uh, joined the Asbury Seminary faculty in 1995 after teaching at Ashland Theological Seminary for more than a decade. He's also taught at High Point College, Duke Divinity School, and Gordon-Conwell. He's authored more than 60 books, which is awesome, and he's joining us today. Ben, welcome. Good to be with you. I know we have several things in common. Uh, we love Jesus. I know you like sports, and you like jazz, and those are a couple of things I enjoy as well. So uh, I appreciate you taking time to be on the show today, and I know my audience is uh, excited to hear about your teaching today on Matthew uh, five through seven, which you refer to affectionately as Jesus's greatest hits. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk in general first about that, and okay. then we'll get right into the text. Um, Jesus uh, would have appeared to most early Jews as a wise man, as a sage, but not as a prophet. You, you may notice that he never once said, "Thus saith the Lord," and then quoted the Father. Uh, he he doesn't speak like the classical prophets. He speaks on his own authority, and he speaks like a, a sage. Now, what is a sage? Well, the, the paradigm example would be Solomon. And so uh, wisdom literature is composed of proverbs, aphorisms, riddles, parables. Well, that's exactly what characterizes Jesus's teachings. Uh, any and all kinds of, of wisdom literature. Now, it's a very specific kind of wisdom literature. It's not more generic like Solomon's would be, have been in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's wisdom about the coming kingdom of God, the coming divine saving activity of God. So that's the kind of speech that Jesus uh, regularly spoke in public with. And we see this in Matthew 5 through 7 as well. Uh, it, the, it begins with Beatitudes, it ends with a parable, and in between there's all kinds of wisdom speech along the way, mixed together with legal speech about commandments about this and that as, as well. So that's who Jesus was. Now in regard to Matthew 5 through 7 itself, if you look at where this same material occurs in Luke, which it does, it's uh, in three, four, or five different places in Luke. So probably Matthew 5 through 7 is a Matthean collection of Jesus's greatest hits. And in fact, it's the first of six discourses that we have from Matthew uh, topics. Uh, for example, in Matthew 13, we have a collection of, of parables, among other things, and teachings on discipleship. So this is a deliberate schema set up by Matthew. It's, 
It's not a sermon that Jesus gave all on one occasion. It's a collection of things that Matthew thought should be front and center when we begin to talk about Jesus as a teacher. So that's what we've got in Matthew 5 through 7. I didn't know that. When yeah. we look at the material itself, we need to understand how wisdom literature really works. And it doesn't work the same way as, say, normal historical narrative or even uh, imperatives, um, ethical imperatives. It, it works by trying to create an image of something that is true that will reach the hearts as well as the minds of people. And so we have these beatitudes uh, right off the bat uh, at the beginning of Matthew 5 through 7. And um, they're very interesting because some of them are talking about a present situation. And some of them are talking about a future situation. So, for example, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall. Well, they are said to be blessed now, uh, but the real benefit's coming later. They shall see the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of God, those kinds of things. But some of these things are uh, present tense. Blessed are the peacemakers. Um, and, and so the Beatitudes themselves, let's concentrate for a minute on the word blessed. Uh, another way to translate this would be good for you if, if you're this way. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and the thing that's interesting to me is these are very specific. They're not, they're not, for example, things that Deepak Chopra could just throw out as generic uh, blessings for just anybody coming along at any time. It has to do with discipleship to Jesus, a belief in the coming kingdom of God, the coming divine saving activity of a God, and um, lining up in accord with the teaching of Jesus so that you may receive those kind of benefits. And if you do the comparison between the Matthean form of this material and the Lucan form, you'll notice some real obvious differences. For example, blessed are the poor in spirit in Matthew simply reads in Luke, blessed are the poor. Now that's different. Yeah, this is Dr. Ben Witherington. And so the debate in the scholarly world is, okay, which is the more primitive, which, which better represents what Jesus is actually talking about? Most scholars would go with Luke the historian as giving the more primitive form of this uh, original teaching, whereas Matthew has nuanced it for his Jewish Christian audience uh, in order to help them better understand what's actually going on here. So uh, that that's one thing you can you can sort of line up the the Lucan beatitudes and the Matthean beatitudes. Another interesting difference is that Luke uh, not only has beatitudes, he has woes. But woe for you if X, Y, or Z. We don't have that in Matthew five. It's a, a more positive tone, not an either or kind of tone at the beginning of of Matthew's presentation of things. Now, that sort of preface of good for you if or blessed are if 
um, sets up what's coming after that, which is a whole lot of interesting teaching by Jesus. Some of it is simply a reaffirmation of Old Testament ethical teaching. Some of it is an intensification of Old Testament teaching. And some of it uh, charts a new course that, in fact, uh, you wouldn't find in the Old Testament. Indeed, it, it nullifies what the Old Testament was saying. And this is one of the things that's most important about understanding what's going on with Jesus. He's not simply reiterating what, what is in the Old Testament teaching about things like adultery or murder or various other subjects. No, he's offering his own fresh teaching on these things. And sometimes it goes well beyond the Old Testament. For example, Jesus talks about adultery of the heart, not merely adultery of behavior, but the adultery of the heart. He, in fact, says uh, in Matthew 5, um, if a man so looks at a woman that she is led astray into adultery, and I, I would really insist that's what the Greek says. See, the onus is on the man who's doing the looking, not on the woman who's led astray. The blame is being placed on the, the lustful looks of the man in this particular case, not on the woman who's uh, accused of being an adulteress. That's different from thou shalt not commit adultery in the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Jesus, in a patriarchal society, in a male-dominated culture, is saying, you fellas are the ones most responsible for what happens to women in these sorts of circumstances. And, uh, and that's, that's characteristic of Jesus. Uh, you know, the famous story in John 7, 53 to 8, 11 of the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus is not liking this situation at all because it's a setup. It's a setup to test Jesus to see if he'll go against the Mosaic law. And what he especially doesn't like about it is, where's the man caught in adultery? I mean, it takes two to tango. Where's the man caught in adultery? Mm -hmm. Why stigmatize just the woman in that situation? And he wants nothing to do with an unfair legal process. And so what he says is, let those who have no sin cast the first stone. And he's probably not talking about sin in general. He's talking about those who have no sin in this particular matter, because it's the elders of the community who are responsible for the moral rectitude of the community. And they're the ones who have dragged this woman before Jesus to test Jesus and not dragged the man with her. Hmm. This is Dr. Ben Witherington. So notice what he says. At the end, when they all drop their stones and walk away because they realize that Jesus has implicated them as sinning in this situation in the way they handled it, he says to the woman, is there anyone there condemning you? And he, she says, no, sir. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Now, that's the kind of balance of justice and mercy that we see characteristic of Jesus' teaching. And we see that in Matthew 5 through 7 pretty, pretty clearly throughout. He intensifies what counts as adultery. Even adulterous looks count as adultery. 
But at the same time, he's going to offer more forgiveness and more mercy along the way. So it's not an either or proposition. Mm -hmm. Another good example of how Jesus steps out on his own is what he says about divorce and what he says about oaths. Basically, he says no oaths. And the Old Testament allows for oaths. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. No oaths. I'm not. I'm saying that that mosaic allowance of oaths is not a good thing, mm-hmm. and he's also saying very clearly that Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of human hearts. But now that the kingdom is coming, there's a new set of rules in regard to marriage and divorce. Ben, I hate to interrupt your train of thought, but we do need to take a break, and I'm got my Bible out and my notebook out, and I'm taking notes as fast as I can. So let me just take a short break. We'll return. Dr. Ben Witherington is my guest. We're in the words of Jesus, and we're back in uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We'll be right back. Ben Witherington III, and Ben, I, I mixed in a little Pat Metheny for you. Thanks. I appreciate <laughs> that. Big Pat Metheny fan. As am I. I've seen Pat live, and he's amazing. Uh, what a guitarist. So uh, thank you once again for agreeing to come on the show and talk about the words of Jesus. Those are the words I love the most, and we're in Matthew uh, chapter 5 through 7. And right before the break, you were talking about the O's. Would you go back to that real briefly before you move on? Sure. Jesus bans oaths. This is why some very conservative Christians, if they're ever called to testify in court, refuse to put their hand on the Bible and swear an oath. (laughs) Because Jesus says, no way, Jose, no oaths, let your yes be yes, no be no. I mean, the function of an oath is to make clear that you're telling the truth. Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus says, you don't need that. Transparency means just say what you mean and mean what you say say yes or no. Uh, and and so Jesus is setting up a whole new ethical code, which does incorporate some things from the Old Testament, but it goes beyond it in various ways, and it goes against it in various ways. Because why? Because the new covenant is being inaugurated. And the new covenant is not merely a renewal of the Mosaic covenant. It's a quote-unquote new covenant, the one Jeremiah talked about, the kind of covenant written on the heart. So let's deal with some of the more radical teachings of Jesus that we have in Matthew 5. Um, I'm going to start with the business about murder. Jesus's basic teaching is no killing, not merely no murder, but no killing. We're supposed to love our enemies, which does not mean love them to death at the point of a gun. No killing. Jesus's position is that we're to practice the opposite of that, namely forgiveness. If we were to go further in Matthew to Matthew 18, remember when Peter comes and says, 
Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And, and you can imagine that uh, between these two siblings, Andrew and Peter, there were probably many disagreements over the years, to say the least. Uh, I like the way the movie The Chosen depicts that relationship. It's somewhat tumultuous, uh, just like James and John, the son of Zebedee. But uh, Peter says, well, should I forgive him seven times? Now, in Jewish ways of thinking, seven is the number of perfection. So Peter thought he was going on to perfection when he said, uh, should I forgive him seven times instead of retaliating? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven, by which he did not mean once you get to 490, then you can whack him. <laughs> uh, what he means is always forgiving, just like Jesus does from the cross in Luke, Father, forgive them. He's talking about his tormentors, his executioners. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, the interesting thing about that passage in Matthew 18 is that there's only one other place in Scripture where the numbers 7 times 70 come up, and it's Lamech. If you go all the way back to Genesis, Lamech says some people take a sevenfold revenge, but I will take revenge 7 times 70. Jesus is reversing the curse. Wow. Joining me today is Dr. Ben Witherington. The beginning of the curse is not just in the sin of Adam and Eve and their expulsion from the, from Eden, but in the story of Cain and Abel. What happens in the story of Cain and Abel? Violence, murder. Jesus bringing in the kingdom is reversing the curse, and that includes the curse of using violence to solve problems. Uh, Jesus' disciples, like Jesus himself, are to be forgivers, not takers of life. And, and that's a very important principle for Jesus. But what about the teaching on divorce? This one we really need to get right, because, in fact, the church has gotten it wrong for, like, forever and is still getting it wrong. The divorce rate in the church is just as high as the general culture in America. It's over 50% at this point. Mm -hmm. So something's wrong with this picture. So let's talk about what Jesus actually says. If you compare what Jesus says in Matthew 5, and then in Matthew 19, where he says disciples have two options, heterosexual monogamy or celibacy and singleness, which he calls being a eunuch for the kingdom. If you compare that teaching to Mark 10, in Mark 10, Jesus simply says, no divorce, period, no divorce. Moses permitted divorce, says Jesus, due to the hardness of human hearts, but that was not God's original design for marriage. Now, in Matthew 5, 32, and in Matthew 19, 9, you have exception clauses, no divorce, except on grounds of pornia. But what in the world does that mean? That is not the word for adultery. The word for adultery in Greek is moikaia, not pornia. Pornia has a technical meaning or a very broad meaning. Yes, it refers to sexual sin. Uh, it's the word from which we get pornography, in fact. A porne was a prostitute in the Greek world. That's what a porne was. So pornia would, uh, in its most primitive sense, mean sex with a prostitute. 
And that's clearly forbidden in scripture, not a technical term for adultery. The other interesting thing is that pornia could be a catch-all term for any and all kinds of sexual sin, heterosexual sin, homosexual sin, pederasty, bestiality, you name it. It could be all of that. But it's clear that the disciples, especially in Matthew 19, don't think Jesus is uh, giving a more lenient definition of when you can divorce. They think he's giving a stricter definition of, of divorce because they respond and say, if that's the way it is between a man and a woman, better not to marry in the first place. Jesus is taking away their privilege of divorce. And that's very clear from Mark 10. So what's going on with these exception clauses in Matthew 5, 32 and Matthew 19, 9? Well, probably Jesus is referring to something in particular, something very much in particular. He's talking about the, the case of incest of Herod Antipas uh, marrying his brother's wife. And what, in fact, the teaching is, is that if you engage in a marriage that's not a real marriage to start with, then you should stop it. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. It's, you will remember that criticizing that incestuous relationship is what got John the Baptist ha having his head cut off. That, that's, that was the cause of that. So probably these exception clauses deal with something very specific, namely incestuous relationships. And that would mean that the teaching in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and Mark 10 comport, and the basic teaching is no divorce. So, Greg, what does Jesus say about marriage? But here's the kicker. What Jesus says in his teaching about marriage is, let those whom God has joined together not be put asunder. And he knows they could be put asunder. He doesn't say let those whom the clergy has joined together or the rabbis join together or the state has joined together. He says, let those whom God has joined together not be put asunder. Now, I have to tell you, there have been plenty of marriages in the church that God didn't join together. There's been plenty of marriages in synagogue that God did not join together. Uh, and in Jesus's world, you don't have a paper from the state when you get married. You don't have the benefit of clergy. Rabbis didn't do weddings, unlike modern clergy does. And, and in, in addition to all of that, you, you don't have a ceremony like the modern wedding ceremony either. Jesus is talking about Jewish weddings where God has joined two people together. So there is a spiritual criteria for what counts as a marriage in God's eyes. Ben, I hate to hit pause again, but uh, we're up against a, a, a break here. And I do want to come back to this conversation because it is so critical. So thank you so much. Dr. Ben Witherington is my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. 
Welcome back to the show. I'm with Dr. Ben Witherington III. Uh, today we're talking about the words of Jesus, and he has selected Matthew's, uh, Matthew 5 through 7 today, which I love. And he is a uh, professor as well as a very prolific author. He's authored over 60 books, but I'm delighted to have him on the show for the first time today. And uh, Ben, when we right before we went to break, we were talking about the, the very um, interesting teaching that Jesus has on divorce. And I know we've got more to say about that. Sure. So um, just a couple of other points. What Jesus is saying is quite specifically for his disciples. I mean, if you look at the beginning of Matthew 5, while there is a crowd listening, mm -hmm. the Greek is clear that what he's teaching in Matthew 5 through 7 is not for the world in general. It's quite specifically directed towards disciples. To whom more is given, more is required. And this is some of the stuff that's required of Christian disciples. Now, I mean, in the modern situation, the way we approach marriage is very different. Marriages were arranged in Jesus's world. Uh, the girls were normally uh, right past puberty, uh, 12, 13. The boys were 16 or 17. And it was the father of the bride and father of the groom in a patriarchal society that arranged the marriage. We live in a different world. You know, we've got a whole industry of courting and uh, dating and uh, love language. And all of that is part of the Western culture that wasn't part of Jesus's world. So the question really is, how do we apply what Jesus says to a very different social situation? And here's what I would say. Uh, the, the sad fact of the matter is, that people get themselves married. And a lot of people who get themselves married are, are not going through a process of discernment, spiritual discernment before they get married. Oh, they just want a nice wedding in a pretty church building or with benefit of a clergy who was the minister of their parents, but they themselves haven't gone to church in forever. Mm -hmm. um, the truth of the matter is that that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about two people, a man and a woman, that God has brought together to share in a one flesh union and have the possibility of creating a family. That's what Jesus is talking about. So just because somebody's gotten married in the church doesn't make it a Christian wedding. Just because somebody's gotten married by benefit of clergy. No, there are spiritual criteria and there should be considerable counseling before a marriage is done. I agree. You know, I mean, when I was a, a, a pastor and I pastored six Methodist churches, I made very clear to my people that my main job is not hatching, matching, and dispatching. <laughs> my job, main job is not baptizing, marrying, and burying, though I will do plenty of that. All of those, all of those things uh, should fall under the uh, rubric of the teaching of Jesus and follow the teaching of Jesus about those sorts of things. Uh, well, we don't follow the teaching of Jesus very much, to be honest, even in the church. And the end result of that is chaos. The end result of that is lots of divorces, <laughs> for sure. And uh, so I would say that when Jesus says, 
those whom God has joined together. He's talking about a very specific kind of spiritual union between two people that God has initiated, and that, that kind of relationship should never be broken up, should never end. Other kinds of relationships he's not even talking about. So that, that's the important point. But the most interesting part comes when you compare Matthew 19 and the disciples say, if that's the way it is between a man and a woman, better not to marry. Why? Because Jesus had just given woman, women more security in marriage by saying what he does. And he's taken away the male privilege of divorce because in Jesus's world, only men could divorce. Women could try to force a divorce. They could separate. They could leave. But only men could legally divorce. Well, Jesus is saying, no divorce for you, fellas. None. The kingdom is coming. You're going to do a better job of doing what God says about marriage. And that's the way it ought to be. And so that's this very demanding teaching. And I would <laughs> simply say, nobody can do that apart from the grace of God. Even Christians can't do that apart from the grace of God. So Jesus's presuppositions about this is that God is the other person involved in this marriage, joining these people together. What about other teachings in Matthew? So let's talk a little bit about the Lord's Prayer. There are two forms of the Lord's Prayer, which really should be called the Disciples' Prayer. It's a prayer Jesus gave for the disciples in particular to pray. It's not a universal prayer. It's not a prayer for all religions. It's a prayer for the disciples of Jesus. And the Matthean form is quite different from the Lucan form. Luke, uh, Luke's Lord's Prayer simply begins, Father. It doesn't begin, Our Father who art in heaven. It simply begins, Abba. Originally, Jesus taught in Aramaic, so the word, a word of intimacy for God was Abba. This is how Jesus himself related to God the Father. We see this in, in Mark 14 when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, if it be possible, says Jesus. Uh, what's also interesting about this prayer is that um, in the Matthean form, the Matthean form talks about debts and debtors. The Lucan form talks about trespasses. Now, a debt is a certain kind of trespass, or a sin is a certain kind of debt. So the language is not exactly interchangeable, but it's interestingly comparable uh, in various ways. What you should notice is the order of the prayer. First, there comes the praising of God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that presupposes that it's not already being completely done on earth. I mean, the reason we're praying that it will be done is that we're actually praying for the end of human history. We are indeed. Joining me today is Dr. Ben Witherington. We're praying for the end of the world. We're praying for Jesus to come back and fully bring the kingdom of God that is in heaven on earth as it is in heaven. So this is a very eschatological or end times kind of prayer in that regard. 
Then it deals with practical things. Give us today the bread for tomorrow. Or another translation would be give us today our daily bread. You'll notice that Jesus encourages us to pray for the necessities of life. He doesn't encourage us to pray for uh, luxury items. He doesn't, for example, encourage us to sing with Janis Joplin, Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? <laughs> Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount encourages us to be satisfied with food, shelter, and clothing that take care of the job, and, and that's what we should be asking for. One of the most misrepresented portions of the Sermon on the Mount uh, is where the verse says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added. What are all these things? If you look at the context, the earlier verses before that, they think these things are basic food, basic shelter, and basic clothing. It's not luxury items. It absolutely isn't. So Jesus is not an initiator of the health and wealth gospel. Far from it. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses or debts as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. There is a connection between us receiving forgiveness from God and our offering it to others who have sinned against us. Put another way, if you don't forgive your brother or even your enemy, you're putting a spiritual block in your life to receiving God's forgiveness. There is this connection, just as there's connection between love your neighbor as yourself, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So there is also forgive your neighbor as you have received forgiveness in this prayer. Joining me today is Dr. Ben Witherington. And then finally, it says, do not put us to the test, but deliver us from the evil one. I do not like the translation that says, lead us not into temptation. God doesn't tempt anybody. And this is a prayer offered to God. So enough with that. That's a bad translation. Really, it shouldn't be rendered that way. God tests us to strengthen our character. The devil tempts us to destroy our character. So really, this verse should be read, do not put us to the test, but rather deliver us from the evil one. That's what we should be praying to God. And then there's a little doxology in the Matthean form of the prayer. Uh, for thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever and ever. Amen. There are various manuscripts that don't have that. It was added when this became a formal prayer in the church. That prayer is very important. It is the paradigm of the kind of things that we ought to pray for, the person to whom we should pray, and what we should pray about. And, uh, and of course, it's, uh, you know, probably the most prayed, prayed prayer in all of human history since the time of Jesus, and rightly so. Interestingly, um, in the second and third century, we've now archaeologically found amulets or little things that you put around your neck, and there would be a scripture in the amulet. Guess what it was? The Lord's Prayer in Greek. So people were carrying this prayer around 
as the most fundamental way of addressing God and uh, felt that it was that important that they not only would put it in writing, but they would wear it as they traveled as a, as a means of reminder and protection. So let's move on a little bit further now, if we can. And before we do that, can I ask you a question? I'd, I'd love to make uh, this statement, and I'd love for you to respond to it uh, when you're talking about forgive us our debts as uh, we have been forgiven. Um, so we also forgive our debtors. It seems that the degree to which you don't forgive is relative to the degree to which you suffer. Yeah. Oh, I think that's right. I think because uh, if you don't release uh, the other person, it, it hurts your own spirituality. I'll tell you a story about this. Um, John Ed Matheson, uh, now retired, very big church minister in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, had a woman in his congregation who had been married 30-some years to the same man. And then all of a sudden, he ran off with a woman that was half his wife's age. Now, this woman was a devout Christian, a really devout Christian. And, and yet what happened is a root of bitterness grew up in her soul about this. N not a surprise, a, a normal reaction to what happened, but it was ruining her otherwise good Christian spirit and, and the fruit of the spirit in her life. So finally, John Ed had to call her into the office. And he said, Betty, I have noticed your spiritual well-being has deteriorated over the year and a half since your husband left you. So we need to go through an exercise for your benefit. He says, I want you to picture your husband sitting in a chair across from you here in my office. Now I want you to say, John, I forgive you. She looks incredulous and says, you've got to be kidding. He said, no, I am as serious as a heart attack. So she says, John, I forgive you, and then spits. And then he says, okay, let's try this again. Only this time, say it more like you actually mean it. John, I forgive you. Then John Ed said, well, that's a little better. Let's try it again. Let's suppose... Not only is John sitting there, but in a chair next to John is sitting Jesus. The one who has forgiven you all your sins. And she begins to cry. And she barely whispers, John, I, but not I, but the Christ in me forgives you. And then John Ed says, now let it go. You needed to give forgiveness just as much as your former husband needs to receive it, even if he doesn't know it. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness offered frees up the soul from bitterness and suffering. You're absolutely right about that. And that story illustrates the point. And after that, she had turned the page and was going back to being the, the lovely Christian person she had been before. Yeah, those are some hot calls. All right, uh, Ben, let me take a short break. We'll be right back with uh, Dr. Ben Witherington. Continue our study on the words of Jesus. We're in Matthew 5 through 7. Be right back.
I'm back with Dr. Ben Witherington. So glad to have him as a guest today. We're continuing our, our series on the words of Jesus, and we're in Matthew 5 through 7. And Ben, you have uh, provided some insight to these two chapters, which have been amazing for me. I've taken lots of notes, so thank you to this point. I know we only have one segment left and not a lot of time, but uh, where should we pick it up from here? Well, I have about three things that I would like to dwell on in our remaining segment from Matthew 6 and 7. But let me just say, uh, there's a whole lot more that I have written about this in my commentary on Matthew, which you can easily find on Amazon. So if you're wanting more, you can find that on Amazon. Let me first say, uh, from the segment about don't worry, says Jesus, the thing that Jesus is really getting at more than anything else in that whole segment, and don't worry about what you eat, what you wear, your father knows you need them, those sorts of things, is that he wants a faith-based practice towards daily life, not a fear-based practice. Since 9-11, when the trade towers went down and, and since the pandemic, even Christians have given way to all kinds of fear-based speech and practices, which are really not faith-based at all. The most fundamental thing is that we're supposed to trust the Lord in all our circumstances and not to rely on the worldly wisdom that we hear coming across the television all the time. Jesus is very clear about this. Don't worry even about the necessities of life. Live a good Christian life based on faith. Do the jobs that God has called you to do. Serve the people God has called you to serve. And leave the results in God's hands. I mean, we try to manipulate the outcome of everything. And that kind of manipulative behavior is exactly what Jesus wants us to give up. So that's from the end of chapter 6. Then at the beginning of chapter 7, we have the famous, judge not lest ye be judged. And that has been so misquoted, I just don't, you know, it would take me an hour to explain how many ways this passage has been misused. But I'll just say this for now. Jesus is not suggesting you get a frontal lobotomy and do no critical thinking about other people's words and deeds and behavior. What he's talking about is that you do not know with clarity the spiritual state of another person, and you certainly don't know if they're going to hell in a handbasket or going to heaven. So you're not to make any final judgments about the state of their soul. That's what this is really all about. It's not about don't be discerning when somebody does something that's a sin or don't bother to correct them if you see them going astray. It's not about any of that. It's about the fact that we are answerable to God at the last judgment, and they are answerable to God, and we are not God in their life, period. That doesn't mean we shouldn't give good advice. It doesn't mean we shouldn't correct where we see something that's a sin or done wrong. But what it does mean is we are not the final judge, jury, or executioner of anybody else's life. So you got to leave all that in God's hands and not go around pontificating about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. That's just wrong. 
the last thing that I want to deal with here is the parable at the end of chapter seven. Remember I said we began with wisdom speech, the Beatitudes. Yes, I remember. I have to say one of my very favorite far side cartoons is uh, it, it shows a meat mall matter person sitting with his accountant. And the subheading says the day after the meek inherit the earth. And the accountant is saying, what you have here, sir, is a very serious capital gains problem. <laughs> the Beatitudes are, are beautiful teachings about what will be true when the kingdom comes fully on earth and what is already partially true. But the parable at the end is a sort of warning. How are you constructing your life? Are you building it on solid rock, a solid foundation, the teachings of God, the teachings of Jesus, Jesus himself as the rock? Or are you building your life on sand? That this is the end of the teaching. And in the Sermon on the Mount, the last thing Jesus wants them to hear. And as any good preacher will tell you, at the end of the sermon, you need to leave them with a memorable image or idea that they can ruminate on and think about as they go forth. Joining me today is Dr. Ben Witherington. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. Key spoiler, he's not talking about not everybody who confesses Jesus as Messiah will enter. The phrase Lord, Lord here means good sir, good sir. He's addressing Jews who use the word curie to, as a term of respect for a teacher. So he's contrasting a person who politely addresses Jesus but pays no attention to his teaching, whether they're a follower of Jesus or just a listener in the larger audience there. So this is not a contrast between walking what you talk and talking what you walk. This is a contrast between people who have a respectful uh, address to Jesus or think of him that way, and those who have really embraced him as Lord and are trying to live out his teachings. That's the contrast here. And then he gives us this teaching about building on sand and building on solid rock. And the difference is between a wise person and a foolish person. The wise person builds on solid rock, which, by the way, is all this teaching in Matthew 5 through 7, much of which would be counterintuitive, some of which goes further than and some of which goes to annul Old Testament teaching about killing, about oaths, about various other things about various permissions for divorce. Um, Jesus is calling on us and giving us a new commandment. And he says, you need to build your life on these things that I am teaching you, because that would be distinctively a mark of the follower of Christ. And if you do that, your life will not be for naught. All the things you built in your life or accomplished in your life will not be for naught if you've founded it on the person and the work of Christ and his teaching. Wow, this is a incredible teaching, and I appreciate, uh, Ben, all the insight. I, I've, I feel like I've heard things today that I've, I've never heard before. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder if you get that all the time, <laughs> do you? 
Well, it happens a lot because what happens, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous teaching of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And you know what they say, over-familiarity creates misunderstanding or even contempt. Yeah. People have had a, snar a small dose of Jesus' teaching, inoculated with a small dose of Jesus' teaching that's prevented them from understanding the real thing and really feeling the full impact of that teaching. Yeah, and that's well. sad, but it's true. And even more now than previously in my life, I mean, the church has become more biblically illiterate over the course of my life. And they even know less and less about Jesus's teaching. And when you're not saturated in God's word in the teachings of Jesus, well, you're gonna go with the wisdom of the world. Yeah. You're gonna go with what the culture tells you is okay, is right. And that's just no way to be a disciple of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Ben, thank you so much for doing the show. It's been a delight having you on. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Dr. Ben Witherington has been our guest. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you so much for being with me. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you missed any of it, go to the podcast at myfaithradio.com. Have a great night. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.